Proverbs 17, verses 1 to 14, says this. Better is a dry morsel and quietness with it than a house full of feasting with strife. A servant who acts wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully and will share in the inheritance among brothers. The refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the heart. An evildoer listens to wicked lips. A liar pays attention to a destructive tongue. He who mocks the poor taunts his maker. He who rejoices at calamity will not go unpunished. Grandchildren are the crown of old men, and the glory of sons is their father. Excellent speech is not fitting for a fool, much less a lying lips to a prince. A bribe is a charm in the sight of its owner. Wherever he turns, he prospers. He who conceals a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates intimate friends. A rebuke goes deeper into one who has understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. A rebellious man seeks only evil, so a cruel messenger will be sent against him. Let a man meet a bear robbed of her cubs rather than a fool in his folly. He who returns evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. The beginning of strife is like letting out water, so abandon the quarrel before it breaks out. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your wisdom, Lord, given to us in your word. And Lord, we pray that this contrast that we have been studying between righteousness and wickedness, Lord, that this would be clear and manifest to us, Lord, that we would see the straight path of righteousness, Lord, the highway of holiness, and that we would walk therein. Lord, guard us from crooked paths, Lord, from the way of the fool, Lord, seeing that it is better to meet a bear robbed of her cubs, Lord, than to meet a fool in his folly. So, Lord, guard us from the way of sin, Lord, from foolishness and evil, and establish us in truth and in righteousness. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. There, in Proverbs 17, verse 1, he begins by saying, Better is a dry morsel and quietness with it than a house full of feasting with strife. Here, the contrast is twofold. In the one house, there is scarcity. There is a dry morsel. This is a house of poverty where there isn't an abundance of food, a very simple, meager life. In contrast to a house full of feasting, right, where there is an abundance of good food, an abundance of wine, all of these comforts that are open up to them. And naturally, if we were looking at these two things, and we said, which one would you prefer? The house with a dry morsel or the house with feasting? Everyone would say that they would prefer to have the house with feasting. And that would be the common natural response to to any man. And yet here we are told that when you add in another factor... The house with a bare morsel actually is more desirable than the house of feasting. And what is this factor that makes a simple, uh, meager life better than a life of abundance and prosperity? Well, it is quietness versus strife. When there is peace and harmony in the home, then that home is a better place to live, a better place to dwell, than if there is a home filled with strife. Even if the one with peace has a meager existence, even if they're only eating a dry morsel of bread, better to live in that home with quietness and peace than to live in a home with much feasting and many of the comforts of life when there is nothing but strife, contention, constant bickering and fighting, quarreling among the people. And this we know 
to be true, right? We know this to be true, not only by what the Bible tells us, but even our own perceptions and even our own experiences, right? That it would be miserable to be married to certain people, right? If they are filled with strife, even if you were very wealthy and rich, right? It would make your life utterly miserable to be in that situation. And it is far superior to have quietness and peace in the home. This is commending to us how good it is to have a peaceful quiet life. And this is what we as Christians should aspire toward, to live a simple, quiet, dignified life in all godliness, to have peace first with God and then to have peace with our fellow man, peace in the home, peace with our church, with the members of the church, peace with our neighbors, peace in society. Wherever we go, we are to strive for peace with all men. As it says in Hebrews 12, 24, Pursue peace with all men. We are to be peaceable peace people. This is one of the attributes of Christians, that we are to strive to live at peace with all men. As far as it depends on us, this is what we should ascribe to, and that this is a better life, a peaceful life, than even a life of great abundance. We remember in Proverbs fifteen seventeen. Better is a dish of vegetables where love is than a fatted ox served with hatred, right? So whatever the outward conditions, the outward circumstances, which most people want riches, they want comfort, they want pleasures, they want all these things in life, and yet there are other things that the Bible is telling us are more important than having prosperity and having all the comforts and pleasures that are afforded in those things. There are certain uh, circumstances that you cannot put a monetary value upon, right? How valuable is it to have peace and harmony in the home? How valuable is it to have love? How valuable is it to have a wife that loves you and children that love you and adore you and to have harmony with them than to be constantly biting and devouring one another? So we should strive for peace, not only in the home, but also in the church as well. Why would we want to be embroiled in conflict and controversy nonstop? always biting and devouring one another. This is not uh, conducive of the Christian life or of the work of the Spirit within us. We should desire to have peace with one another, peace with one another. It's a good thing. Right? Give peace a chance, right? This is what they say. So we ought to know this above anyone else as Christians in knowing what the Word of God teaches us. Number two, a servant who acts wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully and will share an inheritance among brothers. Here again, you have these two contrasts, a servant and a son. And typically speaking, in the household, you would say the son has the priority. The son has the greater position. But here, you're bringing in another factor. And what is common or natural is subverted whenever you bring in this additional factor. And what is the factor? Well, the servant is one who acts wisely, while the son is one who acts shamefully. And when there is a wise servant, in contrast to the shameful son, the father of the home, the master of the home, he can't entrust his son with anything because he's a shameful, foolish, worthless fellow. So this servant is going to be given greater tasks, greater responsibilities, greater authority in the home than even the son. What should be natural and what should go to the son will be circumvented from him and given to a mere servant or slave because of his wisdom. And he will receive an inheritance with the brothers. 
He will be exalted and lifted up within the household and within the home on the basis of what? What is it that is commending him to his master? It's his wisdom. He acts wisely, justly, prudently in the way that he conducts himself there within the home. And in light of this, the master gives to him great glory and great honor, great responsibilities, and even assigns to him an inheritance there amongst the others. We know from Genesis chapter 39. In Genesis 39, Joseph was elevated in this way. Though he was a servant or a slave in the household of Potiphar, yet he was elevated to a very high position because of his wisdom, right? Because it was obvious the hand of God was with him and that this was a trustworthy man. And the best thing that Potiphar could do for his own household was to entrust everything to the care of Joseph, right? This was the wisest, most shrewd thing that he could do for his own benefit was to let this slave rule over his whole house because when he did so, who was going to benefit? Potiphar was, Genesis 39. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt and Potiphar, an Egyptian, officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, brought him from, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now the master saw that the Lord was with him, and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight, and became his personal servant. And he made him overseer of his house, and all that he owned he put in his charge. It came about that from time to time he made him, from that time he made him overseer in his house, and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge. And with him there he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. Now it doesn't tell us what constituted Potiphar's household. How many other servants were there? whether there were sons, whether there were relatives that were associated with it. But clearly here, Joseph, on the basis of his wisdom, was elevated to this position of highest honor there within the household of Potiphar. And we know as well from Genesis 15 verse 2 that before Abraham had Isaac, his slave, Eleazar, was going to inherit his household. This is how highly he regarded his servant is that he was willing to grant to him his entire household because of the absence of a natural son. So here, again, what is common and natural in life, right? this humble state of the slave, is circumvented and overturned through wisdom. So he's commending to us wisdom. Now, if this is true of a slave, then how much more true of a son who doesn't act shamefully but acts wisely, that his father will entrust him with everything. And isn't this what God the Father has done with the Lord Jesus Christ? He has made him the son over the household, and he has entrusted everything to his care. And will Jesus mismanage the household of God? Never. He will manage it in the proper way. And then we, who are his slaves, will receive an inheritance with him, right, based upon wisdom, the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 3, the refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests hearts. Here, the refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold. 
Silver and gold are placed in the pot or in the furnace in order to test them, to try them, to expose whatever impurities are there so that they might be refined and may be made pure, pure gold and pure silver. And this is what men do in this present world with metals and with various things in order to test them and try them and to purify these things. But men cannot do this with the human heart. Only God is able to test the heart in such a way. Only God can bring about and be the revealer of the hearts of men. And this is what God does. This is his prerogative, his unique prerogative that belongs only to him. There are some things that God shares with us, some works, some attributes that God shares with us that are communicated there among men, such as his love. We are to love as God loves. We are to be holy as God is holy. Not that we can love in the same degree or measure that God does, but our love for one another is to mimic or to be like the love that God has for us or to be holy as God is holy. But there are some attributes and some works of God that are unique to him alone that he does not communicate among the sons of men. And who is the only one who has the ability to test the hearts of men? Only God. Only God can do this. We can look at the words, we can look at the actions, and we can do the best that we can, but we don't have the ability to bring about what is in the human heart because it's not open and laid bare before us. But it is open and laid bare before God before Christ, and he is able to test and reveal what is in the very hearts of men. In Jeremiah 17, Jeremiah 17, verses 9 to 10, it says, The heart is more deceitful than all else, and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds." God is the one testing the heart, searching the heart and mind, and he is the one able to reveal what is there inside. Then also 1 Peter 1, 1 Peter 1, verse 7, says this. Here, speaking of various trials and sufferings. We'll actually pick up in verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So there, the faith and what is there in the hearts of men is being tested through the trials, through the fires of tribulation, so that the gold in us is refined and becomes more precious, more pure within. Just as the refiner does this with gold and silver, so God does this with the children of men. And specifically here in First Peter, he's doing it to his children, right? He's doing it to the church, to his people, to the believers, bringing them through various trials and afflictions. This is the fire, the furnace, by which he reveals and tests what is in our hearts and exposes and purifies us of our sin. Verse 4, an evildoer listens to wicked lips. A liar pays attention to a destructive tongue. Here, there are two sides to this coin. 
while it is true that the one who speaks evil is an evil person, right? It is a great sin for us to repeat and speak lies, to speak falsehood, to promote those things that are not true. And those who are teaching and promoting lies and falsehoods, they will certainly be held accountable to God. But here, it is also an evil thing to listen to wicked lips. It is an evildoer who will listen to a man with wicked lips. It is a liar who pays attention to the destructive tongue. So in this relationship of the speaker and the hearer, where, who is the liar in this? Well, both of them are liars. The one speaking is a liar because what he's saying is false, but the one who listens to it without any discernment and receives it as true is also practicing lies and falsehood, right? So both of them are culpable. Both of them are guilty. There is mutual guilt whenever there are lies and falsehoods being promoted. In here, specifically in regard to false teaching. When someone is teaching what is false, we often think of the hearers as victims of the false teacher. And while it is true, in a certain sense, they are victims of them, they are also complicit with them. Because if they had no audience, they'd have no one to speak to. They wouldn't have anything to say. But what do you always find with false teachers? There's a large group of people who are willing and ready to listen to them, to hang on their every word, and give them their money. And why do they do this? because they tell them exactly what they want to hear. They want lies. They want falsehood. They want to believe that they can live in sin and have the favor of God, that they can do whatever they want and know that they're going to go to heaven one day, and there is always going to be a false teacher who will be there to tell them exactly what they want to hear, who will say to them, peace, peace, when there is no peace. The false teacher... He is culpable for that sin. It is a great sin. And James chapter 3 says that not many of us should be teachers knowing that we who teach will be held to a higher standard of judgment. That false teacher will be held to a great standard of judgment because he is deceiving people and promoting what is false. However, the people are also culpable and they are also guilty because they desire it and they want it. They are the ones who are the suppliers. There is the supply and there's the the demand. Actually, they're the demand side. They are the ones that are demanding it. And then the false teacher simply comes in and fills in the supply, the void, and gives them exactly what they want to hear. And this is as it says in 2 Timothy 4, verse 3, when he says that the time is coming when men will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves Teachers to suit their own passions. Men will not want sound teaching, but they will find teachers who will give them exactly what they want. This from 2 Timothy 4, 1 to 3. Then verse 5. He who mocks the poor taunts his maker. He who rejoices at calamity will not go unpunished. Here, this is a grave evil and a very arrogant and haughty thing to do. For someone to mock the poor because of his poverty, right? Whenever one is doing this, who is he taunting, right? Who is he ultimately mocking? Because who is the maker of the poor man? God is the one who made the poor man, and God is the one who made the poor man poor. 
And therefore, when a person mocks the poor man, he is mocking God, his creator, and he is mocking God, the providential ruler, who has put this poor man in this state of poverty. So it is a very grave evil to do such a thing. God is the one who made the poor, and God made the rich. God is the one who makes the poor man poor, and God is the one who makes the rich man rich. But when the rich man mocks the poor man, the rich man is acting, he's, he is behaving as if he has made himself rich. That he is the one who has elevated himself through his wisdom, through his shrewdness and his ingenuity. He is the one who has brought himself to this level of prosperity, and he's not giving due credit to God. And so he is taunting his very maker. And if you taunt your maker, it's not going to go well with you, right? It's not going to end well if you continue to taunt your maker. And then also, he who rejoices at calamity will not go unpunished. When a person rejoices at the calamity that befalls another, right, in this very evil, malicious way, that person is going to be punished. When we see people who are suffering under some calamity, we should be moved with pity, with compassion, with sympathy for them. This is, should be the feeling that we have when we see someone undergoing some calamity or some disaster. But whenever someone is mocking and ridiculing, rejoicing at the calamity of another, then it is a very evil thing. It shows a complete lack of love, of sympathy, of tenderness, of pity for the fellow man. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. First Corinthians chapter 4. Verses 6 to 7. It says, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. For who regards you as superior? And what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you have not received it? You are already filled You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we also might reign with you. So there, why are you regarding yourself as superior? Isn't that what the rich man is doing when he's mocking the poor? He's regarding himself as superior. But here he's saying, what do you have that you did not receive? What does the rich man have that God has not given to him? He has been lifted up by the providence of God, by the rule of God. God is the one who gave that to him. Didn't God teach this to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4 when he was looking boastfully and arrogantly over his empire as if he was the one who did this? And God taught him by making him mad that it is the Lord who gives the kingdoms of men to whomever he wills. What did Nebuchadnezzar have that he did not receive from God? It all came about by God. So if God gives it to one, and if God withholds it from another, then who are we to stand in arrogance and boast against our neighbor? Now, one other point of clarity, Proverbs 11, Proverbs 11, verse 10. This as a uh, help us to understand 
the one rejoicing at calamity will not go unpunished. Proverbs 11.10 says, When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perishes, there is joyful shouting. But here, this joyful shouting is not a joyful shouting at the calamity that has undergone the wicked, but it is a joyful shouting at the deliverance of their evil, from their evil and their evil influence and the oppression that they have been bringing upon the people. That's why the righteous are rejoicing, right? When the, when the righteous are ruling, the city is rejoicing because of the wisdom, the justice, the righteousness that is being promoted in the land. And when the wicked perish, their shouts of rejoicing, not because they are rejoicing at their calamity, but because they are rejoicing at being liberated from their cruel oppression, from the wickedness and sin that they promote in the land. So there is no contradiction between the two. Then verse 6, grandchildren are the crown of old men, and the glory of sons is their fathers. The Bible commends to us in many places the blessing of having children, right, of having a family. And one of the blessings that goes along with having children is also grandchildren, that if God grants a man long life, long enough life that he sees not only his children, but then his children's children. And for some even, they might see it to the third generation. Their great-grandchildren even as well. That this is a great honor and a blessing that God gives to men. And it is a crown of his old age. For a man to be surrounded with his children and with his grandchildren and even his great-grandchildren, to be able to set them on his knee, to bounce them in his lap, right? To have the joy that comes with, with them, especially with the grandchildren, because you get to send them home at night. You don't have to feed them, right? Change their diapers. You let the parents do, do all that, the discipline, the hard work, and you just get to spoil them. This is one of the blessings that God gives. It is a crown of glory that God gives to old men. So though, again, in, with age, we lose some of our natural abilities, we lose the athletic abilities that we have, our body begins to wear and to break down, our natural beauty begins to fade. However, God, he supplements that with other blessings and honors. And here, grandchildren are one of those, right? Which is something that the Lord gives. And then the glory of sons is their fathers. Again, in both of these, the importance of family and the importance of godliness in the home is being stressed. But, you know, that it is a blessing. One of the blessings God gives on this earth is family and having children and raising children and having grandchildren, that this is a favor that God shows to men. And here, the glory of sons is their fathers. Now, this is not all fathers, but it has to assume that the fathers are wise, righteous fathers, godly fathers, believing fathers. Sons who have righteous fathers, are they going to be ashamed of them? Are they going to speak ill of them? Right? Are they going to, to not want to be associated with them? No. If the son has a wise father who is known as a godly and righteous man, and the son is himself a godly and righteous man, he's going to speak very favorably of his father, of the way that he was raised, of his faith, of his godliness, of all of his virtues and attributes. He's not going to be ashamed of these things, but he's going to glory in them and speak highly, speak well of his father to many, many others as well. 
Even the Jews, though they were using this in the wrong way, they spoke highly of Abraham. They would tell people, we have Abraham as our father. They weren't ashamed to call Abraham their natural father. And so it is with all of the righteous. They're not afraid, ashamed to associate with their fathers as long as their fathers are godly people. Now, if their father is a murderer, a serial killer, a rapist, right, a, a, a druggie, well, then they're going to be very ashamed of them. And they're not going to want to speak of them. They're not going to speak highly of them. They're not going to want people to know that they belong to or that they are associated. They'll immediately begin hedging and explaining how it is that this is what my father is, but I'm not like him. They'll be doing those types of things if the father is a shameful and a wicked man. Verse 7, excellent speech is not fitting for a fool, much less our lying lips to a, a prince. Here, excellent speech can be taken one of two ways, and it can be applied in both ways. One, there are some people who have an ability, a natural ability at or, or, uh, to be an orator, to speak. And they can speak in very uh, gifted ways so that they're able to communicate very accurately and in a very sophisticated, eloquent way the things that they are wanting to communicate. And when a person has this natural gifting of speech, but then he's not using it in a way that promotes the glory and honor of God, but is using it to promote lies and falsehoods, then it's not fitting. It is not fitting for someone to have such gifting of the tongue to use that to promote what is false. So it can be in that sense that there are people who have a silver tongue, who have a natural ability to communicate and to speak in ways that are very convincing, that grip the hearts and the minds of men. And if they use that gift and ability in order to promote lies and falsehoods, it does great damage because they gain the advantage over men through their eloquent speech. Also, it's not fitting for a fool to speak and to take the gospel into his mouth, right? And to use it for unjust gain, right? And there are many people who do this as well. Many who are not true servants of Christ, yet they speak of the oracles of God. They read the word of God and even many false teachers. Some of the time they're speaking what is true and right, right? Even someone like Joel Osteen, he, even he will read from the Bible from time to time. And is it fitting that a man like that would read from the Word of God and use his lips to speak the Word of God publicly? No, it's not, right? It's not right for excellent speech to be in the mouth of a fool. Nor is it right for lying lips to be on a prince. A prince, someone who is a ruler over the people, should be committed to truth, justice, and righteousness. And if the prince has lying lips, then it is a great disadvantage to the people because by nature of his authority and of his position, many people are going to listen to what he has to say. And if what he is promoting are lies and falsehoods, then the people are going to believe lies and falsehoods and they're going to walk in a way that is contrary to the truth. That is true both of the ruler as prince, but also believers. Because we are princes in the sense of we are we belong to a heavenly calling. We are a royal priesthood. So we have this dignity upon us as being a prince of God, right, under Christ. And it's not fitting for Christians to have lying lips, 
We should only speak what is true. We should not lie to one another. We should not promote falsehood, but only that which is true. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, 25. Says, therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Lay aside falsehood. So don't have lying lips. Speak truth to your neighbor. This is the way that we should be as princes in the kingdom of God. Verse 8. A bribe is a charm in the sight of its owner. Wherever he turns, he prospers. A bribe. A bribe is used to pervert justice. And whenever a man has a bribe, it is described here as a charm in the sight of its owner. The one who owns the bribe is like one who has a charm. He uses this charm to bewitch other people so that wherever he goes, he prospers. He is able to get his way, to have his influence, to to turn things in his own advantage through the use of this charm, which is the bribe. Because men will do anything for money. If you throw money on the table, then many people will succumb to that temptation. And this is why the owner is able to prosper in whatever he does because the bribe is like a charm that he uses to enchant men so that they do exactly what they want him to do. Exodus chapter 23 talks about how a bribe perverts or blinds justice. Exodus chapter 23 and verse 8 says, You shall not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of the just. The clear-sighted, right? They have clear sight. It's obvious who's right and who's wrong. It's obvious good and evil, truth and error, right? It's there, it's plain. And without this outside influence the judge is going to easily be able to determine and discern who is right and who is wrong. But then you introduce the bribe into the equation, and all of a sudden, what happens? Everything becomes cloudy, confusing, murky. We, you know, we really can't know. And then justice is subverted. And this is the way it works in society, especially in politics, right? In the court of law, many times justice is perverted because of bribes. People use bribes to curry favor with whomever they want and to get their way on policies, in court, in whatever it is, and this is not good. It's a very evil thing, but it is a very successful thing. And the reason why bribes are like charms is because people love money, right? And they'll do anything for money, and if you put enough money on the table, then everyone will become a liar, and they'll promote what is false. Except for who? Jesus Christ. He won't do it, and we shouldn't do it, right? We should live according to our principles and according to the word of God and not give in to such schemes. Verse 9. Actually, we should say before we move on, it also doesn't just happen in politics. This happens in churches as well. In churches, many people use money in churches in order to get their way, to push their way and to get whatever they want within the church. So it's not something that's just taking place out in society. It even takes place in the church, and so we must be on guard against doing that 
right? We should give our money, but we should do it with the right motive. And the right motive is love of God and love of neighbor. And we should do it not to manipulate and to get our way, but do it, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing, right? If your right hand doesn't know what your left hand is doing, how are you able to use your money in order to get your way within the church, right? It's contrary to the way that Christ teaches us to give. Okay, that was in addition. Verse 9, he who conceals a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates intimate friends. Here, part of love is concealing a transgression. Now, he's not talking about sweeping things under the rug. He's not talking about just overlooking whatever sin there is. Of course, he cannot mean that. But as far as we can, we should seek to conceal transgressions. We should seek to promote what is good and right. And if there is righteousness in someone, then we should be telling everyone about it. But whenever there is sin we should seek to conceal it and to cover it so not to ruin the reputation of the person in the sight of other people. And yet, what do we find within our flesh? And what are almost all men prone to do? Whenever they find out some secret sin, some transgression, they want to publish it far and wide. They want to tell everyone about what this person did instead of concealing it and covering it. And is that consistent with love? No. What does Christ do for us? Doesn't he conceal our transgressions? Doesn't he cover them? And is he getting on a a foghorn and announcing it to the whole world, all of our secret sins that no one else knows about, but he does and that we confess to him? He's not doing that to us. So why should we do that to one another? So the concealing of transgression is the one who seeks love. But the one who repeats a matter separates intimate friends. The one who goes around as a loudmouth telling everyone sins, whispering in this ear and that ear about all these transgressions, no matter how distant they are, no matter if the person has repented of them, maybe they were a part of their past before they became believers and they find out about it and then they want to go around and tell other people about these things. That is a very evil thing to do and it separates people because now these people who had a favorable, high opinion of this man, now they have a very negative, sour position toward them. Because this one has gone around and ruined their reputation and poisoned the minds of others against this person. So that even their intimate friends now stand aloof from them, keep their distance from them, want nothing to do with them. And this is what a talebearer does, who goes around telling and revealing transgressions. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13, we read this this morning. We shall read it again. Verses 4 to 7. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. There, love does not take into account a wrong suffered. But if it is being repeated over and over again, it is taking into account a wrong suffered, and that is not consistent with the virtues of love. Verse 10, a rebuke goes deeper in one who has understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. Here, a man with understanding, 
a godly man, a man who has wisdom and who wants to know the will of God, a timely spoken word of reproof, a gentle, kind, prudent, given word of reproof to this person is all of the help that he needs and will have a great impact and influence on his life. If he is doing something that is contrary to the will of God, whether by what he believes or the way that he's living, and someone comes to him, some wise man comes to him and with love and mildness and gentleness corrects him in his error, that person will receive that correction and it will have a great influence upon him. It will set him in the straight way. Instead of going crooked in this way, he will now know the straight way and he will set himself upon it. This is the way that it should be. This is as Prisca and Aquila, whenever they took Apollos to the side and they explained to him more accurately the way of salvation. That's all that it took for Apollos. And he gained great understanding from their gentle, mild correction in that way. But then you take a fool, you can beat him a hundred times, a hundred blows, and it's still not going to change him. Because no matter how many times you beat him, you cannot change his heart. Now, this doesn't mean they shouldn't be beaten, right? He's not saying that, right? Take a man who's a drunkard, and you beat him, and he continues to be a drunkard. And you beat him, and you beat him, and you beat him, right? Because no matter how much you beat him, what can you not get out of his heart? You can't get his drunkenness out of there, his sin. It takes a miracle of God. Now, again, he's not saying that there isn't a place for punishment. You can, through punishment, modify their behavior, right? In the sense of you can keep them from acting upon all their evil impulses out of fear of getting a good beating, but you can't change their heart. Even if they change their behavior, they're still a fool in their heart because no matter how many times you beat a man, you cannot force him or make him become a Christian. You cannot convert people by the power of the sword, right? It doesn't happen that way. It takes the power of the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God being used by the Spirit of God. Only he can do that. Verse 11. A rebellious man seeks only evil, so a cruel messenger will be sent against him. Here, a rebellious man a man who is rebellious against God. And to be rebellious against God is to be living in sin and is to be seeking only evil. This is the way we are in our natural state. We are rebellious against God and therefore we seek only evil. And whenever a man continues, persists in these rebellious ways, an evil messenger, a cruel messenger, will be sent against him. God will repay this man according to what he has done. He will repay to their face according to what they have done. They have rebelled against him. They have sought evil. So God will send a cruel messenger against those rebels, and he will completely destroy them. An example of this would be 1 Samuel 16. 1 Samuel 16, verses 14 and 15 Actually, we'll read first 1 Samuel 15, 22. Notice here that Saul's sin is described as rebellion. 1 Samuel 15, 22, Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? 
Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. So there, his sin is described as rebellion and insubordination. Then chapter 16, verse 14. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. Saul's servants then said to him, Behold now, an evil spirit from God is terrorizing you. Isn't this exactly what happened to Saul? He was a rebellious man who sought evil, so God sent a cruel messenger to him, an evil spirit from the Lord, to torment and to terrorize him. And so it is a warning for us to not be rebellious against the Lord. Do we want God sending an evil spirit to terrorize us, to torment us? We don't want that. So we shouldn't rebel against the Lord. Verse 12. Let a man meet a bear robbed of her cubs, rather than a fool in his folly. Here, a bear robbed of her cubs is very angry, right? She's frightening. She's terrorizing. No one wants to meet a bear robbed of her cubs on the way because she's in a fury and she's going to devour whatever is in her path. This is a terrifying sight, right? And we would all, I would say you would run, but you can't outrun those bears. They're huge, yet they are very fast. You would say, well, just climb a tree. But they can climb a tree and they have those paws that just knock you out and then they'll devour you. So there's nothing you can do. It is an inescapable, you know, terror to meet a bear and a bear that has been robbed of her cubs, who is in a fury and ready to destroy. So everyone knows and understands that this would be a frightening situation. However, better to meet a bear robbed of her cubs than a fool in his folly. Now, the reason is because what is the worst thing a bear can do to you? The worst thing the bear can do is kill your body. But can a bear robbed of her cubs destroy your soul and send you to hell for all eternity? No. But what can a fool in his folly do? If he is promoting lies and teaching you falsehood and you're believing lies, where do those lies end up? What will happen to your eternal soul? You will be condemned on the day of judgment if you believe lies. So a fool in his folly is a more dangerous adversary than even a bear that is robbed of her cubs. Because the fool in his folly will destroy your soul and will send you to hell for all eternity if he gains a standing over you. If you fall victim to his lies and to his folly, then it will be eternal destruction for you. This is as it was said of the scribes and Pharisees, that they shut the door, they shut the door of the kingdom from the people. They themselves did not go in, nor do they permit others to go in. They shut the door of the kingdom of God. And they did so because of their folly. So if you have those foolish people as your teachers, it is a very dangerous and eternally dangerous situation. And he's trying to communicate here how drastic it is. And this is why we should not want to be under those people, but only those who are going to teach the word of God to us, right? The, what the word of God says. Then verse 13, he who returns evil for good 
Evil will not depart from his house. Evil for good. Evil for good, right? This is completely contrary to what the Bible teaches us. The Bible teaches us that we should repay evil with good, right? This is what it says in Romans chapter 12, verses 14 to 21. We are to bless those who persecute us. Romans chapter 12, verses 14 to 21. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Bless those who persecute you. Right? Pray for those who curse you. This is what the Bible teaches. But what about those who persecute those who bless them? What about those who curse those who pray for them? He says, repay no one evil for evil. Right? If someone's doing evil, you don't repay them with evil. You repay them with good. But what about if someone is doing good to you? Then how much more should you repay them with good and do what is right toward them? But to repay someone evil for good... This is the height of folly and madness. You're talking about turning everything upside down in terms of godliness, righteousness, in terms of virtue and love, and the way that we are to behave toward one another. And yet, what will we find in this world? There will be people who will repay good with evil, especially when the Christian church is seeking to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is a good deed. It is a good thing for sinners to preach the word of God to them. We are doing good to them when we do such things. And yet, many unbelievers, it shows you just how wicked they are, how sinful, sinful men truly are, how evil they truly are, is that even when that goodness is done, this great blessing is given to them, they will respond to that blessing by cursing, by persecuting, by reviling, by saying all manner of evil against us falsely because of the sake of Christ. When a man does this, evil will not depart from his house. Right? God will bring his judgment upon such people. Such people as who repay good with evil. Evil will not depart from their house. Psalm 35 Psalm 35, 12 to 16. This is what happened to our Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 35, 12. They repay me evil for good to the bereavement of my soul. But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled my soul with fasting, and my, care, my prayer kept returning to my bosom. I went about as though it were my friend or brother. I bowed down mourning as one who sorrows for a mother. But at my stumbling they rejoiced and gathered themselves together. The smiters whom I did not know gathered together against me. They slandered me without ceasing. Like godless jesters at a feast, 
They gnashed at me with their teeth. Was there anyone who ever did more good to people than our Lord Jesus Christ? All that he did was good to them. And yet he came to his own people. And how did his own people repay him for all of the good that he did to them? They gave him evil. They gave him evil. So what did God give to them? He gave them what they deserved. Evil did not depart from them. He completely destroyed Jerusalem, the people of Israel, because of what they did to Christ. And if we behave in the same way, then it'll happen to us. So do not repay good with evil. But instead, repay good with good. And even if someone does evil to us, repay evil with good as well. In this way, we will prove ourselves to be children of God. Then verse 14. Verse 14. The beginning of strife is like letting out water. So abandon the quarrel before it breaks out. Yes, the beginning of strife is like letting out water. When the levee begins to break, right? When there's a little rivet there in the side of the dam and the water begins to flow out, what is going to happen? It's going to grow and grow and the divide is going to become bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and all of the water is going to flow out and you're never going to come to the end of it. It starts out as a small quarrel, but as it goes on, it grows and it grows and it grows, especially if you're dealing with a quarrelsome and a contentious person. It'll never come to an end, right? It'll only grow bigger and bigger and bigger to the point where you're looking at it going, what in the world is going on, right? Even over something as insignificant as whether we can celebrate Christmas, right? <laughs> these types of things will grow until they become these massive controversies. Well, this is why, right? Whenever there is the beginning of strife, it is like letting out water. Whenever there is the beginning of this type of contention, this type of carping, this type of, of censorious spirit, criticism and controversy, it is like letting a little bit of water come over or out of the dam, and then as it begins to flow, it turns into the Grand Canyon before the whole thing is over. So what is the prudent measure to take? Abandon the quarrel before it breaks out. If there is a quarrelsome type of person, and this type of quarreling begins, the best, the prudent, the wise step is to do what? Is to just walk away from it. Abandon it and say, I'm not going to engage in this and I'm not going to get in the weeds and wrapped up in all these things because I know that even after 200 hours of meetings, at the end of it, it's all going to end the same way. So why would I inflict myself, my family, my church, right, to this endless strife? Just walk away from it, right? We don't always have to win the argument because with some people, it's impossible to win the argument. The best option is to just walk away, abandon the quarrel, and live in peace, have a little sanity, harmony, and live in that way. Because whenever these things begin to snowball, it becomes a massive controversy. And you begin to pull on each little thread, and before you know it, the whole thing is unraveled. And it's not good for anyone. It causes much damage and much harm to many, many people and great disrepute upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's better to abandon the quarrel before it even breaks out.
And this is according to the very wisdom of God. So, this then is the way that we should live. We should practice what the Word of God teaches us. This is the contrast between the righteous and the wicked. And so then let us pursue that which makes for peace with all men. As far as possible, let us live at peace with all men. Let's pray, and then we will be dismissed. And Bruce, I'll ask you, would you mind praying and dismissing us today?